This is They Create Worlds, episode 172, The Computer Price Wars, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We come to you live from the past and the future and in the present. It really depends on when you're actually paying attention to us. That's right. For those of you who didn't get the message, we are actually recording this episode live in front of a studio audience, by which I mean Twitch chat, then editing this and putting it up for general consumption some amount of weeks later that I don't have track of right now. But the important thing is live episodes. This is an edited version. It's not just a stream of the stream or whatever. But if there are some weird references here and there as we go through this to responding to comments and whatnot that you don't normally find in an episode, that's because of the live recording. That is right. But I am editing it so that you, the final listener, won't have a regular They Create World podcast and the people watching us live can have a chaotic how the sausage was made. Exactly. And that sausage today is home computers and how they were ground up to create price wars or something like that. Awful transition, but that's what we do here at They Create Worlds. We do good history and ridiculously bad transitions. But yes, it is the Home Computer Wars, a three-part episode. For once, we know it's three parts in advance, which may mean it'll be six, but three episodes that don't just go into the price wars themselves, but also just kind of set up the very idea of what is a home computer? Why is that different from having a computer in the home? How was this market perceived? How did it develop? And why did it go down in horrible flames as prices were on a race to the bottom? Well, I guess we have to start off this entire episode with the obvious. How did hostilities break down or break out? Where did peace <laughs> come to an end? I remember in previous episodes, we have talked about such horrible things as Jack Trammell and Commodore and how it's all his fault. <laughs> That's right. We do some of that for shorthand. It's certainly not all Jack Trammell's fault, but Commodore will be a central figure in what we have to tell here as will their arch-rival across a variety of consumer electronics, Texas Instrument. Before we get there, there is a lot of background to do on just how the entire concept of a home computer developed. Just because smaller computers were beginning to appear in the middle of the 1970s as memory prices went down, as microprocessors came into existence, it doesn't mean that at that time people were seeing a future that was a computer on every desktop or a computer on every cell phone. It was still very much seen as a niche market and not necessarily where computing was going. But as the decade wore on, this would change. So then, Alex, if home computers were not a thing during the 1970s, what was going on during that time? Because obviously they weren't getting on the internet with their consoles. There was an emerging computer market in the 1970s. Throughout the 1960s and into the early 1970s, there had been some dramatic cuts in prices on what were called mini-computers, which were not quite as big and fancy and powerful as mainframe, but still something that was mostly being used by scientists, engineers, and those types of people in their research. As many computers began to permeate and as time sharing began to permeate on both mainframes and on many computers, we talked about that some in our recent roguelike episodes when we were talking about Unix and how it was spreading to these small many computers. There was a new understanding that computing technology was starting to become cheap enough to bring into the home. However, at that time period, the big companies in computing, companies like IBM, CDC, DEC, Data General, did not see a future where people had their own personal computer in their house. What they saw was 
time-sharing networks developing and cheap video display terminals becoming available so that everyone could have their own little video display terminal in their home with a CRT, a typewriter-style keyboard, and a modem, and would be able to dial into a time-sharing network and get their computing fixed that way. Kind of like if what we have now with the internet, except that obviously we don't have dumb terminals, we have smart computers, so you don't have to be hooked up to the internet to do anything. But it's basically a vision of the World Wide Web before such thing was ever a reality. Because of this, there was really no impetus from the big computer makers to create computers for the home, because that didn't seem like something that was going to be useful for the general public. However, what these individuals didn't count on was a burgeoning hobbyist community, which enjoyed building electronics of all types and then using those electronics from things as simple as a little transistor radio sets all the way up to actually building their own televisions. For this group of people, it really wasn't about just having access to a computer in terms of being able to access information that was on a minicomputer someplace far away. They wanted to engage with a computer on a very technical level. They wanted to understand everything that was going on inside that computer. They wanted to lovingly craft it themselves, and then they wanted to play around with it knowing that it was all theirs. It may be a very limited computer with a very small amount of memory that can barely do anything, but it's doing it for me and me alone, damn it, and that means something. In the hobbyist magazines of the time, magazines like Popular Electronics and Radio Electronics, there was initially a push for terminal kits, kits for dumb terminals like we were just talking about to interface with a time-sharing system. But it soon became clear in the letters pages of those magazines that what people really wanted was not a terminal, they wanted a computer. Long story short, because this isn't a focus on the hobby market, that's how you get computers like the Altair and some of its early competitors, which were these little boxy kits where you had to solder everything together yourself, source your own power supply, often source your own case. Well, the Altair came with a case. You know, source your own components, put it all together, and have your own 2K, 4K. If you were really wealthy, you know, you could buy some expansion boards and maybe get up to 16K memory. Yeah, shout out to the old Mark 8, Jonathan Titus, which was not so much a computer as a dream of a computer, because in that case, you did have to source your own case and everything and all your components. You basically just got a circuit board and instructions saying, thank you for buying this circuit board. Now buy all of these other components separately and put them on the circuit board, and voila, you have a computer. This began as a hobbyist market, and this hobbyist market was never going to be mass market. The hobbyist market is not the home computer market, and nobody ever referred to this market that the Altair and the MSI and uh, the Southwest Technical Products and the Sol 20 and all of these other machines were in as a home computer market, because this was really just people playing. However, this hobbyist mentality is what eventually led to the beginning of what you might call a market for computers in the home which, again, is a separate idea from a home computer. Once these systems have been going for a little bit, and once some better processors were starting to get out there and prices were starting to come down, you had a movement towards providing fully assembled computers for an audience that is still going to probably be fairly technically savvy, but isn't necessarily going to be interested in building their own computers. Some of them may be even really interested in programming, but there really is a big divide between people who like soldering hardware and people who like programming. There are some crazy people out there, like Ed Fries, uh, late of Microsoft, who are mad geniuses at doing both. But a lot of people just want to do one or the other. There was never going to be much of a market for just the hardware stuff. At this point, you have companies, though, taking notice. So Commodore gets into the market with the PET computer, mostly because Chuck Peddle at Moss Technology, the semiconductor company, 
noticed that when they put out their low-cost 6502 8-bit microprocessor, which was a very revolutionary thing, they had also put out a tiny little development computer for it called the Kim one which was really meant to just be a debugger. It wasn't meant to even be a hobbyist computer like the Altair. But they noticed, once they put that out, that they actually had a really large demand, large in the context of the small hobbyist market. So we're talking about thousands, maybe tens of thousands, not higher than that. But a really large demand for the Kim one as a computer, even though it was completely unsuited to that. So Chuck Peddle, based on this, decided at Moss, even before it was purchased by Commodore, to put together what he considered a real computer, which was doing a computer that was like a terminal that was used at, say, Dartmouth on the Dartmouth timesharing system, because he was familiar with that system. It was merging this hobbyist idea of having your own computer that came out of the Altair with the terminal idea that was coming out of the timeshared space and creating something that was more user-friendly, and more accessible to somebody who didn't want to solder everything together. And so you got the Commodore PET. The Apple II is a very similar kind of story, because Steve Wozniak was all about terminals. He knew many computers. He wasn't really dialed in to what was going on with microprocessors, but he knew many computers. He knew time-sharing, and he was actually working on a terminal project for a completely different small company. This is before Apple Computer. He was really interested in doing terminals, and then he went to Homebrew Computer Club and learned about microprocessors, and he was like, okay, so there are people here that are basically doing terminals, but with a microprocessor so that they can give it computer functionality. That sounds really cool, and so that's what got him to do the Apple One. And then, of course, the Apple II was an improvement on what they did in the Apple One. It's coming out of this combination of these hobbyist computers and timeshared terminals. Then, of course, you have Radio Shack. Radio Shack is all about hobbyist stuff. They cater to hobbyists. And they had been following a massive fad for CB radios, consumer band radios, that had really been powering kind of their hobbyist business and their Radio Shack stores for a while. And that CB market was beginning to collapse, as all of these electronics fads tend to do. So they were looking at another hobbyist market that they could leverage their incredible base of stores, thousands of stores across the United States, in order to keep making money. And they had some people on staff that had been following this hobbyist market who had actually built Mark 8s and Altairs and all of that. And they were like, hey, we could get into computer kits. Then once they got into it, once they started building it, they realized, okay, this is going to be a very expensive kit. We cannot sell this as a kit because our customers get a little PO'd at us when we sell them a, and I'm just pulling a random number here, but sell them a $50 kit. Don't know if they had $50 kits, but it's good for our purposes. But sell them a $50 kit. They have no idea what they're doing, and they apply a two-inch layer of solder to the entire back of the circuit board and then come back and complain to us. It's like, hey, your stupid kit didn't work. Look at this. I connected everything to the board, and it doesn't work. And, you know, the answer they want from you is not, well, maybe use a little less solder next time. No, it's your fault, the company. At $50, it stings a little, but you get on with your life. At $200, which is what a non-assembled computer kit would have probably cost if they had put it out, then people are going to get a little more upset at that kind of thing. So they were like, this is too complex. We cannot sell this as a kit. And so they decided to do a, a fully assembled computer. That was the birth of the Trinity in 1977. Now, I realize there were other systems doing the same thing at the same time, or in some cases, even a little earlier. I mean, shout out to the Sol 20, which was a turnkey system even before that. The difference here is that Tandy, major corporation with thousands of Radio Shack stores across the United States, Commodore, major corporation that had already been a big name in calculators, already had a decent distribution and already had big factory operations in the Far East, and Apple Computer, which was a small fry, but it was a small fry with very big venture capital backing even though they were the new kid on the block and the small outfit compared to these other two, they were going to be able to get up to speed in the business in a way that a company like Processor Technology with its Sol 20 would not be able to do. 
the birth of that so-called trinity of computers in 1977 was really a watershed moment because it was the first time that you had big commercial ventures with good production facilities and decent financial backing putting out turnkey computers. In other words, computers that you don't have to assemble yourself trying to capture a market that was just bigger than the people that like solder guns. So some people have been tempted, some sources have been tempted to call that the beginning of personal computing or home computing or whatever you want to tell it. Poly 88, okay, fine. Shout out to the Poly 88. There you go. That's all you get or we'll be here till like midnight. And I don't mean midnight tonight. I mean midnight the next day. But there's your shout out. Shout out to all the streamers who, like, do this spontaneously and don't stumble through it all like those of us who do it once a year. Well, they have a lot more skill. I mean, just like anything, it's practice. (laughs) Of course. You go back to listening to episode one of this podcast and you listen to how it's done now. I can't listen to the earlier episodes. I want to go back there and fix them all. Absolutely. Sometimes I want to fix the facts, too, because I keep learning more. There was that one time where I stated very emphatically about Sega not adding a second processor to the Saturn at the last minute. That was lies. Horrible, horrible lies. (laughs) And my defense, the way it is portrayed in most sources, is also horrible, horrible lies. But there was a truth somewhere in between what I said and what other sources said. That happened. (laughs) Someday, and I, I do mean this, I'm not just being sarcastic to address the chat Someday we will probably talk a little more about all those little fiddly computers in the 1970s, uh, some of which had games on them as well. But it is not this day. We got to keep moving. So much moving. So much coverage. Many coverages. Even this arrival of the Trinity was not the arrival of an actual home computer business. Because, quite frankly, these computers were expensive. Really, really expensive. The Commodore PET, even with Jack Trammell always doing his best to create a product as cost-effectively as possible. Some might call it cheap, but there is a bit of a distinction between what Jack Trammell does between being merely cheap and being cost-effective. Even with all of that, had an introductory price of $795 in 1977 money, which is around $3,500 in today's money. The Apple II, of course, was famously much more expensive than that. Your Apple II computer was coming in at $1,300, almost $6,000 in today's money. TRS-80 was indeed the cheapest of the lot. The TRS-80 was able to undercut both of its competitors here, mostly because they sourced a very cheap monitor by going to RCA and using a discontinued model, and because with their wide distribution into their own uh, Radio Shack stores, they had some economies of scale in their manufacturing and their retail distribution. They were the cheap guys. You could have one of those things for $599.95, which was north of $2,600 in today's money. What were you getting for that money? Well, you were mostly getting an 8K computer. You could get more memory than that. You could get 16K. You could even really expand and get up to 48K. But the more memory you bought, the more money you were paying over top of these introductory prices. You were getting an 8K computer that, in the case of the the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET, couldn't even do real graphics. The Apple II could do a bit-mapped screen. The other two could only do characters. Didn't have a disk drive. Again, you could get disk drives, but we're talking about in this base price. Didn't have a disk drive, had to rely on cassette, and didn't have any other peripherals that could potentially make a computer useful for other tasks, like, say, a printer. You're spending a lot of money for very little. Yeah, that's true. The base trash A model was 4K. In the case of Commodore, it was 8K. They dabbled with doing a 4K model and decided against it, so it only got a limited release, so that 795 was 8K. And Apple II went up to 8K. But yeah, the TRS-80 was only 4K. You weren't getting much for that money, and you weren't getting much of anything that could justify its use. It was really still just a hobbyist computer. 
as I said a second ago, uh, Ethan, yeah, the 4K model did come out, but it was very quickly swept aside. But there was a time where you could buy a, a 4K Commodore PET. Some sources say that they ditched it before it even launched. Those sources are wrong because we do have primary sources that show that they advertised the 4K PET, but it really didn't last long. 4K was dead end even at the very beginning. Really, these were still hobbyist computers. They were just hobbyist computers for people that liked software and didn't like assembling hardware. There was nothing like a personal computer market, really, and there definitely wasn't a home computer market. Nobody even considered something like the Apple II suitable for the home. Nobody considered a $1,200 product to be a home product. Quite frankly, Apple didn't really consider it a home product either. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. The concept of a home computer such as it is really didn't arrive until a couple of years later. It shouldn't be a surprise that this concept really didn't come out of hobbyist companies, which is what Tandy and Apple really were, and it didn't come out of Commodore, which really was trying to put most of its focus on businesses with its computer because it had a fancy pants 80-column display unlike some of its competitors in the 40-column world, like the Apple II, which you could eventually get an add-on for to make it 80 columns, but it was natively 40 columns. It was really coming out of the consumer side of the market, and it was really coming out largely of the video game industry. The reason for this is companies that were in the video game industry or were just about to get into the video game industry in 1978 saw these computers coming along and saw the success that they had. I mean, despite the limitations, the TRS-80 did sell about 100,000 units in 1978. Commodore sold about 25,000 pets. Apple sold about 20,000 Apple IIs. There is this great myth that the Apple II and Apple Computer launched the microcomputer industry or the personal computer industry, swept aside all competition, and, and rode off gloriously into the sunset, and that's not true. They were actually well behind, both because of their price and because they were such a new company that just took a while to ramp up both its manufacturing capability and its distribution network. So the TRS-80 was doing pretty well considering all of its limitations. This caused the video game industry to really sit up and take notice and be like, okay, wait a minute. If there's this much interest in these kind of computers when they're this price and have this limited functionality, we have engineers too. We understand how Moore's Law works. We know that computers are going to get more capable, that memory is going to come down, that more powerful processors are going to come out, etc. There's a real appetite for this computer stuff. Those machines are going to be able to do everything that we can and more, and this could be a real problem. So there was a really sudden shift in 1978 across just about everyone involved in the video game industry into deciding, oh my god, we have to get into home computers. They were trying to expand into the space from the bottom. You had Atari when they were in the process of putting together their next generation video game system that they didn't anticipate releasing before 1979 or 1980. They had just released the VCS in 1977, but they were already working on their next implementation. They decided, okay, well, wait a minute. Do we really want this to be a console or do we want it to be a home computer? They went to the leadership of the company, which at that time was Nolan Bushnell and Joe Keenan, and they asked them that question. Okay, as we're building a successor to the VCS, do we want a video game system or a home computer? They said yes which is what was the genesis of the Atari 400-800 project. Initially, the low-end system was going to be strictly a video game machine. Obviously, they were both computers by the time it was done. That was the starting point, so they're getting involved. Mattel, they're looking at breaking into this market. They've been a little uneasy about the market. They've been trying to break in since 1977, but they've seen some of the ups and downs in the dedicated console market, and they're a little afraid. So they decide, you know, the way that we can really leapfrog the competition in this volatile market is we can position ourselves as the video game system that's also a computer. And so from the very beginning, the Intellivision was positioned as buy the Intellivision for, at the time, they were saying $250. That wasn't the reality when it launched, but they were saying buy the Intellivision for $250 and you're going to have a great video game system that's better than the rest of the competition. Then buy our $250 computer expansion. Then you are going to have a $500 computer that is better than a $600 
TRS-80. I'm sure that home computer expansion is going to just go great for Mattel. Just absolutely great. I think we had a whole episode on how it did not. (laughs) Something like that. Then you have the people at Dave Nutting Associates who are seeing all this computer stuff and are like, you know, we can just take our arcade technology, which is a very advanced for the time system. It's an actual system hardware, one of the first in the business. We can turn this into a home console that has some built-in computer capability, and then we can put out an expansion that turns it into a full computer. Magnavox is like, why are all these people doing computers? I thought the future was televisions. But I guess if people are doing computers, we can put a keyboard on our new system, the Odyssey 2, and we can call it a computer trainer. That'll be great. So the Odyssey 2 is not really billed as a computer, but it's billed as a stepping stone because there's this real sense, and you see it in the trade publications of the time, there's this real sense that the video game industry feels they're about to be overtaken. So everyone is either saying, look at our great computer, or look at our great system that is cheaper than a computer, but will allow you to train for the day when computers are available. Finally, there was APF, bravely forging its way through the market as the underdog with its MP1000, who basically looked at all of these other companies that were putting out computers or computer expansions to their systems, and they were basically like, oh shit, everyone else is doing it, we have to do it too. I'm not just saying this to make fun of them. I mean, the interviews we have with people from APF, that is exactly what their mindset was. They saw that these other companies were getting into this computer thing, and they were like, oh, if everyone else is doing it, we better do this as well. And so they created the Imagination Machine, which could be docked with their MP1000 cartridge video game system in order to create a computer. This was the theme of the late 1970s. It's like the home computer's here, the home computer's now, and the home computer's going to take over. In my opinion, it's possible they may have been right if it had not been for a little governmental organization known as the Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC. We've talked about the problems in this period of time before with regulation by the Federal Communications Commission and with the way it was very detrimental to the video game industry. We've talked a little bit about the problems that it caused for the uh, computer industry as well, though we haven't talked about that side of things in as much detail. We also haven't always approached the FCC situation with a great deal of nuance, because I am not a technical person. While Jeff is a technical person, he's not the type of technical person that is measuring emissions. This is not our area of expertise. But there is a fellow in the chat uh, right now by the name of Quarter Past 83, who is definitely all about this stuff. And he has done uh, much more in-depth research than we have on this issue and has, in fact, shared some of this research with us. So I do want to take a second here, because why not? We're here all day anyway, and talk about what some of the problems were with the FCC system. Dale, a quarter past, will no doubt be furiously correcting me in the chat as we go along, but, you know, that's okay. Basically, the main problem here is that the standards set by the FCC were set really quite a long time ago, at a time when no one was hooking stuff up to things anyway. When I say quite a long time ago, I mean like uh, 1938. Dale can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's about the time this... Yep, there he is, 1938. That's the time this regulation was starting at the very, very beginning of the nascent uh, television industry. At that time, the full implications were really not known about how damaging RFI could be, radio frequency interference could be. They erred really, really on the side of caution and set the allowable RFI to 15 microvolts. That's a really small number. Even someone not technical like me knows that that's a really small number. But here's another problem. They didn't have equipment back then sensitive enough to pick up interference at that level. You couldn't actually pick up a frequency of 15 microvolts, which meant that basically if you had any interference at all, if you had something that was measurable, you had too much. 
if they could measure it, you were already over the line. So this was a de facto zero tolerance policy for class one devices. This wasn't that huge a deal necessarily until you really started to get into the concept of add-ons to your television. And the video game was one of the very first of those, but it was not the only one. There was work being done on VTRs, which is what they called VCRs back then, which is what they called DVD players back then for you people that are of a younger generation. I kid, I kid. But there were disk systems, laser disk. There, there were things starting to be uh, created that could actually hook up to televisions. Actually, had to broadcast a signal. This became a real issue because the standards were so stringent. There was basically, as I said, a zero tolerance policy for any kind of leakage. This required everybody that was dealing with the FCC to basically put a ridiculous amount of metal in their devices shielding their modulator so that none of those emissions leaked out as you were broadcasting your signal through the RF modulator to the television. Metal's expensive, kids, especially heavy metal. You wonder why old electronics weigh so much? This is why. Exactly. It's just absolutely terrible. So it creates two problems. It creates the price problem, as you said, because putting all that metal in is expensive. And it creates a performance problem because it is hard to cool a system that you are surrounding in metal. Electronics get hot, kids, and metal is really good at getting hot, too, when you put it next to something that is hot. It is a conductor. Exactly. So this was a real situation, and it caused a lot of failures in this first group. There were a couple that got around it. The Commodore PET didn't have to worry about this because the Commodore PET actually had a metal case, which is not the standard, but basically Commodore owned an office furniture company and they were able to actually create a fairly reasonably priced metal case because they had the economies of scale of being integrated with this company already working in metal. So the Commodore PET was a giant shield. So, you know, it was fine. Apple got around this in the early days by saying, no, 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 no. This isn't a consumer product that hooks up to a television. The Apple II is an industrial product. This is an industrial computer. The restrictions were less strict. They weren't subject to type approval in the same way. They did not bundle their RF modulator with the Apple II, because if they did, the jig would have been up. They sold it separately. So this inhibited sales a little bit for them because it was just another step that the general public wasn't going to want to do, having to integrate all of these pieces together. But it did mean that they could have their computer without all of this trouble. Radio Shack had all sorts of problems. The TRS-80 Model 1 was eventually discontinued because they were having hopeless troubles to make this work. The home computers that were coming out, it was disastrous for the Bally Professional Arcade. The Dave Nutting Associate System was manufactured uh, by Bally because it screwed up cost structure, it overheated the system, causing defects in the first wave that was manufactured. It was just bad, you know, 50 different ways. It was terrible. Other systems in this kind of mid-range, you know, they had to raise their price. Atari did finally release their two computers, the 400 and the 800, but they had to price them relatively high in part because they had to load a lot of shielding. I think that's part of the reason. I'm not positive. I think that's part of the reason why they decided to make them both computers because they had planned for what became the 400 to be the fancy game system and the 800 to be kind of the home computer. But then because of all the shielding, they had to substantially increase the price of both of them. So the 800 was no longer like a friendly home computer and the 400 was no longer really the cost of the game system. So they were like, fine, we'll make the 800 a high-end computer and the 400 a low-end computer. And they ended up having to release those systems at $549.99 for the Atari 400 and $999.99 for the Atari 800. Again, getting to that expensive range. That FCC stuff, I just think, really killed the ability for this to happen. So a home computer market did not materialize in 1978. I think those FCC regulations were a big part of that. There was also still the use problem. That was the other part of it. Okay, you can make a computer for home users, but what are they going to do with it? Oh, they're going to play games with it? I mean, that's great, but can't they just buy a video game system that's $200, $300 cheaper to play the games? What else is it going to do? There are word processor programs? Okay, that's great. So I can type a letter in a computer. But now I have to buy a multi-hundred dollar printer to print that out. Why aren't I just going to keep writing my letters by hand or buying a typewriter, which 
is going to cost me about the same much as the computer does, but I don't need a separate printer to make my letters sendable to my friends. It's like there's the problem of what to do with it. There's the FCC problem that makes them too expensive, makes them hard to justify. That market doesn't develop in 1978. However, we do start seeing a move in this direction into 1979 and into 1980, even though we don't have a full market yet. That really comes down to two companies that will continue to be important throughout the rest of this story, and that's Atari and Texas Instruments. Well, we've talked about those two a lot. Absolutely. Atari is a real mover here, because even though they do have to sell those computers for maybe more than they had hoped in the beginning, they did release something in the Atari 400 that may have had its problems, may have been limited in a lot of ways, but it was a $550 system, so cheaper even than the TRS-80, that offered 8K of memory in its base configuration, which by 1979 uh, was not great. At that point, you're looking at 16K being really the baseline for lower systems and 48K starting to become more influential in higher range systems. But 8K is not 4K, <laughs> like the TRS-80. It's, it's got some memory, and of course you can expand the memory a little bit. But the big thing is, it's actually good for playing games. This is something that we have to remember, and we talked about this in our early Apple II games episode. This is something we have to remember, is that computers in the 1970s, home computers, were really not good for playing games. The PET and the TRS-80 were character-based. We talked about that. You could have some primitive graphics because the characters were not just letters and numbers. There were little blocky characters that could be used for walls and, and other graphical elements as well. So there was a small amount of graphical capability you could get out of that, but not a huge amount. The Apple II didn't have what we now call sprites. It had graphics and it had color graphics, but it was a bit-mapped screen only, which means that rather than moving around little individual small chunks of pixels, which is what a sprite is, it's a chunk of pixels of a certain size that you can move independently of updating the rest of the screen so that they're less resource intensive, you had to update the entire Apple II screen every time something moved because it was just a bitmap. You were drawing the entire screen, and each pixel of that screen was housed in memory. Apple had two modes. They had a high-res mode that had fewer colors but allowed for more detailed graphics, more detailed drawings, and they had a low-res mode that was more colorful but had really, really blocky sprites. In the early days, because most Apples had a small amount of memory, most people didn't have 12, 16, 48K Apples, they had 4, 8K Apples, there was not enough screen memory to do really good graphics because of how resource-intensive a bitmap screen was. So if you look at 1970s Apple computer games, they are either almost entirely devoid of color because they're using the high-res mode to try to get better shapes— or they have the blockiest sprites you have ever seen in your life, just these big, huge blobs that can barely represent anything that are more colorful. We're looking at you, Lemonade Stand. Because you can get more colors that way. All of the games were fairly slow because so many resources were being used. Now, the Apple would be able to do more later because people would upgrade the memory. And there would be the Apple II Plus that came out in, in 79, and there was more that you could do. But in this very beginning, it wasn't suited for it, and the other two computers weren't suited for it as well. Well, the Atari 400, as limited as it was compared to its big brother, the 800, showed that you could have a computer at what I would call a mid-ranged price, under $600, that could actually do compelling games. It gave a purpose for the computer, even if that computer was still largely a frivolous purpose. It gave a purpose for that computer. They also advertised how it was relatively easy to use because it had a cartridge slot. It was blending some of the easier-to-use technology. No loading programs from tape or floppy disk. I mean, you could. Obviously, you could get those expansions to it as well, but you could get cartridges and plug and play within that system. The 800 as well, but of course, the 800 is more expensive, which is why we're focusing on the 400. At the launch of the computer, they released a little game called Star Raiders. Star Raiders really became the first killer app for computers in the home, which again is different from home computers, but computers in the home. This is the same year 
that VisiCalc is being released for the Apple II and is finally giving a reason for small businesses to have small computers. VisiCalc isn't bringing the computer into the home. It's not making a case for why mom and dad should get a computer for little Johnny. Star Raiders and the Atari 400 are making that case. Here's a computer with pretty good graphics, some pretty good audio. Shout out to the Pokey Chip. Thank you, chat. And some relative ease of use. This is making a case for a computer that is worth having in the home. So that's one part of the equation that's starting to get people waking up to this. The other part of the equation is that Texas Instruments decides to get involved, even if their first involvement was a little bit disastrous. These days, when we talk about this early computer business, kind of the common narrative is you had all of these small specialty companies, you know, these companies like Apple and Tandy and all of this that are getting into the computer market, but that what everyone was really looking for, for legitimacy of the market, what the public was looking for in terms of legitimacy of the market, and what the industry was looking for in terms of bringing legitimacy to their product was IBM getting into the business. Because IBM was the big business company, gold standard in mainframe computers. Nobody ever got fired for buying IBM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's absolutely true. IBM was part of that equation. But what people don't actually realize a lot of the time these days is that the companies at the time were equally concerned about Texas Instruments getting into the market. Because TI had become the company that was really forging the way in consumer electronics products. They were doing this because they were basically throwing around their clout. TI had started as a chip company. I mean, it started as an oil exploration company. But for the purposes of our narrative here and its place in consumer electronics, we're going to say that TI started as a chip company. I know that's not strictly true. They made their mark by being the first company to perfect a process of doping silicon in order to create silicon semiconductors. Before they did that in 1954, everyone had to use germanium, which had a bunch of problems with it. Even though they were a small player in electronics at the time, they rode that silicon wave to become the largest chip company, the largest chip producer in the world. As there started to be consumer applications for chips in things like calculators, they became the biggest supplier of chips to these nascent industries. But then the Japanese started getting much more heavily involved because the Japanese were behind in semiconductor technology. But as was the case in many fields that the Japanese entered, they were quick learners. They studied up on emerging technologies. They learned how to work with them, and then they learned how to refine them and improve the process and bring down costs and manufacture stuff that's just as good, if not better, than the competition for cheaper. So in the early 1970s, you know, the calculator boom started at the end of the 1960s. And at the beginning of the 1970s, around 1972, it became clear to TI that with all of these calculators being manufactured in Japan, many of them are being built there because they also have very efficient manufacturing. The Japanese were learning how these chips worked, learning how to improve on these chips, and they were getting close to the point where they would be able to cut out the middleman and just make their own chips to put in their own calculators and leave the big companies in the U.S., like Texas Instruments, high and dry. So as response to this, Texas Instruments made the fateful decision to not just be a supplier of chips for the calculator industry, but to actually build their own calculators. They instigated a price war. This is foreshadowing, people. (laughs) They instigated a price war in the calculator business because they had economies of scale. Now, they weren't just giving their chips away to themselves. Their chip operation was actually making a profit on their consumer electronics operation. Their chip operation was selling the chips to their consumer operation, but they were still selling their chips to themselves at a cheaper price than they were selling their chips to anybody else. TI could undercut everybody on price. So TI drove a rapid race to the bottom. In like a three-year period or something like that, pocket calculators went from like $300 to $9.95. I mean, we are talking about a ridiculous drop in price. 
It drove a lot of companies out of the business. It nearly killed Commodore, which was knee-deep in calculators that they were having manufactured in Japan. It completely redefined Texas Instruments' place in the consumer electronics market. They went on to do the same thing in digital watches. Now, in digital watches, they ended up being swept away by the competitors that were eventually able to undercut even them, but they started the same process. Digital watches, when they first came around, were very expensive. TI came in, started making their own. Prices fell drastically, and that market fell apart. Not such a neat idea after all. TI was known as the company that would get into a consumer electronics business, leverage their chip capabilities, and drive everyone else out of the market. So Texas Instruments was just as feared, if not more feared, than IBM as a result of all of this in terms of getting into this market. The other thing is Texas Instruments had had a great deal of success in microprocessors as well. We don't think of Texas Instruments being a microprocessor powerhouse in the 1970s because we tend to think about microprocessors from a computer standpoint. We think about the 6502. We think about the Z80. We think about the 8-bit microprocessors. We don't often think about 4-bit microprocessors. But the Texas Instruments 4-bit microprocessor, the TMS-1000, was the de facto standard in 4-bit microprocessors. It was in everything. It was in all the calculators. It was in all the watches. It was in all the handheld electronic games. Video games couldn't be run off of a 4-bit microprocessor because you couldn't drive a display with it. But that big handheld boom that we've talked about before that occurred between 1976 and 1978, that was largely driven by the Texas Instruments chip. So they were selling millions of those things. It was crazy. This was the real threatening company, but then a funny thing happened on the way to Texas Instruments' dominance of the computer business. They overshot themselves. They went too far. Because after the uh, TMS-1000 took over everything, they looked over the market, and they looked at all of these 8-bit microprocessors that were going into these computers, and they said, Lo, this 8-bit technology is puny technology, and we laugh at it. (laughs) There's also already way too much competition in this 8-bit microprocessor realm, so we don't want to sully ourselves by getting involved in it. So they decided that they would skip the 8-bit market entirely and go straight to a 16-bit microprocessor and dominate the 16-bit market in the same way that they had already with the TMS-1000 dominated the 4-bit market. Did you like the 4-bit processor? Well, now you can have twice the capability by multiplying them together and then getting 16-bit power with Texas Instruments. So they decided to make themselves a little chip called the TMS-9900 which was introduced in June 1976. This was going to be the 16-bit microprocessor that swept away all the 8-bit microprocessors in the field. Now, when they introduced this processor in 76, they were not planning to make a computer. Yeah, they'd gotten into calculators. Yeah, they'd gotten into watches. But they weren't really planning to get into a home computer at this point. They were releasing this microprocessor so that these other companies already involved in that market could leapfrog the technology and use their 16-bit processor. Well, it turns out nobody wanted a 16-bit microprocessor. At that time, there really wasn't enough of an advantage to it. By this point, there was a very robust 8-bit microprocessor market, and you essentially had two really good choices in that market. You had the Z80, which was kind of the gold standard of 8-bit functionality, just a beautifully designed chip by Federico Fagin at his company Zilog. Fagin had designed the 8080 processor for Intel, and then he left Intel and was like, you know, the 8080 was fine, but I can do better. And so he released the Z80, which was basically a better 8080, and it was fully backwards compatible. So in this period, Intel was really not ruling the roost. It would take IBM choosing their 16-bit microprocessor 
for the PC that got Intel really going. Intel was being overshadowed by the Z80. And if the Z80 was just a little bit too pricey for you, you had the 6502 from Moss Technology, which was a low-cost version, essentially, of Motorola 6800. It was just a really efficiently designed chip, and so it was a cracking uh, processor in its own right. You know, there are 6502 people and there are Z80 people, and I'm not a technical person. They do things slightly differently, which makes them hard to directly compare. The Z80 has a higher clock speed, but the 6502 is able to accomplish some of the same stuff using fewer cycles, which negates some of that clock speed advantage. So there's definitely holy wars over 6502 or Z80. Then there were those poor people that were, you know, sticking with Motorola, but we don't talk about them. Hi, Tandy Color Computer. We'll come back to you later. You know, this was basically the 8-bit market, and those were both good processors, and you had good power for price. Therefore, nobody wanted a 16-bit processor. The TMS-9900 was basically dead on arrival. Well, Texas Instruments being Texas Instruments, this is ingrained in the culture of the company, they were not going to fail. The 9900 was a beautiful piece of technology. Beautiful piece of technology. And if the unwashed masses can't see that, we'll build our own computer with computer blackjack and internet hookers. The classy kind. Exactly. So they decided that they would build their own range of computers, actually. In 1977, at their brand new consumer electronics facility in Lubbock, Texas, they inaugurated a uh, computer group. This computer group began work on a range of three computers. They were basically going to use their 16-bit microprocessor to sweep the entirety of what constituted the computer market at that time. They were going to make a low-cost, low being relative in these days, but still low-cost computer in about the $300 to $400 range something that could compete with the Atari product as well as some of these computer console hybrids like the Bally system. Then they were going to create what they called a a scientific calculator type of computer, a $1,000 computer, something that was for engineers, for small businesses, for people that needed to do a small amount of figuring but didn't need to do all sorts of fancy stuff in the $1,000 range, something that was more competing with the Apple II. Then they were going to make their super high-end business computer, something that could compete with the mini-computer market, for around $7,000. Great. So they start work on these three computers, and they immediately run into problems. They have trouble getting buy-in with management. There's managerial shuffles. There's engineers that are inexperienced with this kind of work, and they're having trouble hiring engineers that are experienced with computers because TI is very much a, we hire fresh-faced grads, and then we promote them through the company, and everyone's here for life, and all of this kind of stuff. And so they had real problems getting these computers together. They finally decided, okay, we're going to scrap the higher-end computers. And we're really just going to focus in on this consumer computer. Texas Instruments is already big in consumer electronics. Let's scrap everything and do like the $400 computer. Great. That'll work. Well, then there's another change. And in 1978, another engineering manager comes in and he's like, $400 computer? You can't do anything with a $400 computer. That's ridiculous. We're redesigning this thing. So at the end of the day, they finally end up with one computer model instead of three. The TI-99. This computer is going to retail in 1979 for a whopping $1,150. Way too expensive for what it's purporting to be. With the 8-bit computers being much cheaper and becoming more powerful and more memory coming in, with even something like the Apple II becoming more capable as they release subsequent models, nobody can really be convinced to work with this computer. But it's still a turning point. Despite the fact that the computer is a failure, it is still a turning point because it's still, look, here is Texas Instruments. Here is the king of consumer electronics saying that this is a field worth being in. Like Atari, there's a cartridge slot. They're trying to promote ease of use. They're promoting kind of this idea that you can bring this into the home and you can do things with it. And it also is a very competent games player because there's another chip in there, a very important chip, the TMS-9918, which is the graphics chip. This is made to be a really, really good sprite 
mover. In fact, as far as we know, this is one of those things that it's hard to track down 100%, but so far the legends seem to hold up. It is actually from the TI-99 that we get the term Sprite. Really? Yes. They were the ones that provided that name. The Atari VCS had sprites, what we today call sprites, but they called them player missile graphics. The Intellivision had what we today called sprites, but they called them mobs, movable objects. There were a lot of terms being used for this concept. TI, for whatever reason, I don't know why they chose that name specifically. Obviously, it's a reference to the mythological creature. I think it has to do with something small and bright flitting around the screen, because sprites are small and glowy. They are the ones that came up with the term Sprite, which became the standard term that everyone used afterwards, because Texas Instruments is the king of consumer electronics. So, I mean, when they say something, people take notice, even if their computer is a failure. In this case, the TI-99 was an absolute failure. It was dead on arrival in its original incarnation. We'll get back to them. Still, though, 1979 is a turning point because you have Atari and Texas Instruments showing, you know what? You can actually get really good graphics on a computer, and you can get really good games on a computer. Maybe you can get these into the home, and they were pushing them for more than games. In fact, Atari kind of made a mistake by pushing too much in the other direction. They were really trying to push the educational and home productivity sides of their 408-100 computers as well. They were releasing educational cartridges and accounting package cartridges in their advertising, they were giving this stuff equal billing to games. They were really not wanting to pigeonhole it into the games market. Now, that other stuff wasn't gaining any traction, but, you know, there was that real attempt. So you had that going on. Meanwhile, you had VisiCalc showing that, okay, small businesses do have a reason to have a computer. So there's some excitement starting to build here at the end of the decade. And the other influence Texas Instruments has that has been overstated, but we're still going to talk about it briefly, is they play a role in ending these FCC regulations. We've said in the past that they were kind of the key player. We did that based on really the testimony of their competition, who were all very salty about it. So they were letting some of their salt get in the way of their perception of what happened. In truth, There was a move that started in the early 1970s from companies like RCA that were involved in video disc and other non-video game applications that you were plugging into your TV. There was already a movement underway from the beginning of the 1970s to get the standards lowered for these consumer devices so that the zero-tolerance policy was no longer a thing in type approval. It's just that these processes take a long time. You have to lobby, you have to get their attention, then after you get their attention, the FCC has to ask for comments, and then once they ask for comments, they have to draft new regulations based on those comments, and then they have to ask for comments based on those drafts, and then they have to revise and comment and revise and comment. It's bureaucracy. It takes a while. So this movement was actually starting even before the video game systems and computers of 1977 and 1979 were coming out. By 1979, this process was drawing close to its conclusion. The problem was it wasn't concluding fast enough for Texas Instruments. Texas Instruments' computer was coming out in 1979. They did not want to have to conform to the higher standards because they already had an expensive computer at 1150. It would have been much more expensive if they also had to comply with the FCC regulations. Even as this commenting process was running its course, TI asked for an exception to the general rule on interference standards. Well, this just caused a firestorm across the entire computer and video game industry. Because companies like Atari, that had to shield the hell out of their systems and raise their prices accordingly, were like, uh, no, we had to comply with these strict standards. We had to base our cost structure on these strict standards. It would be entirely, entirely unfair If Texas Instruments got themselves an exemption and gets an unfair competitive advantage because they can lower their price based on the fact that they don't have to put all the shielding in. So there were hearings, there was lots of opposition, but at the end of the day, TI got their exemption and they probably got their exemption because they had powerful friends in Washington. Now, we can't know that for certain. It could very well be that the FCC, and I'm not even, I'm not being sarcastic in saying this, it could very well be that the FCC decided 
The standards are being revised soon anyway. They make a good point that they're too strict, and we're changing them, so we might as well just give them the exception. Or maybe as a trial run to see how does Texas Instrument putting out a computer that has less stringent standards might start affecting things so that we have a ballpark as to where we need to move things. Oh, no, they, they, they don't do that. No, no, they Government doesn't test things, you know, in the general public. That would be chaos. Chaos! Or at least as they do, when they do do it, they keep it under very secret wraps. <laughs> but they might have decided, just based on that circumstances, to do it. However, it is also true that the Texas congressional delegation was a very, very powerful delegation. Some of the most influential congressmen at that time came from Texas. Congress doesn't have direct control over the administrative portion of the executive branch, something that Republicans in Congress have been wailing and gnashing their teeth about, and Democrats too. It's just Republicans are more associated with it for a very long time, the so-called unelected fourth branch of government. So it's not like they can order the FCC to do their thing. But they do have ways of applying pressure because they do have the power of the purse. They do control the budget. They do have the ability to write legislation that changes what an administrative organization is able to do. They have some power. It's just not direct power. So they can't order the FCC to grant the exception, but they can comment. They can do what are essentially amicus briefs. It's not a judicial hearing, so it's not called an amicus brief, but they can essentially do an amicus brief and say this is a good idea. And then behind the scenes, they can apply a little more pressure. At this time, the great state of Texas congressional delegation included Mr. Jim Wright, who was the House Majority Leader and would later become Speaker of the House. And it also included George Mahon, who was a big muckety-muck in appropriations and happened to also be the congressman representing the district that included Lubbock, Texas, where the consumer division of TI was housed. We don't have any definite proof about influence. Wright did write a letter to the FCC saying that he thought the standard should be changed, so he was lending his influence. There's no evidence that Mahon did anything. He didn't publicly comment in any way, though I would find it truly shocking if the representative from Lubbock, who was also such an incredibly influential congressman, didn't lend his influence behind the scenes. But we have no proof that he did. I mean, he may not have. Either way, T.I. got their exemption, and very soon afterwards, which would have happened regardless of the T.I. exemption, the FCC loosened the restrictions. So now at the start of the 1980s, you have a proof of concept showing that you can have glitzy, colorful gaming computers that also have additional functionality. You have VisiCalc showing that small businesses have a reason to own microcomputers. This starts an expansion of the market. And you have FCC regulations being lifted so that now companies are not burdened by having to put all sorts of extra shielding and thus raise the cost of their systems to huge heights. In addition to that, Moore's Law is continuing to be true in that you have prices constantly falling relative to power. Therefore, you're starting to see computers that can reasonably have more memory. You're starting to see 16K become a standard even in cheaper computers, and you're starting to see 48K become a standard in more expensive computers, which again allows for more robust capabilities on these computers. So now, as we enter the 1980s, we're in a situation where, okay, maybe computers aren't just for hobbyists anymore. Maybe these microcomputers aren't just tinker toys. Maybe we can start marketing computers both to small business users that need something a little more powerful and a little more expensive in the $1,000 to $3,000 range that can help them run their business. We'll call these personal computers. I'm just talking about the marketing parlance of the day. Maybe there's also a market for something that is a little cheaper, a little less powerful in its calculations, but can have really flashy graphics and sound, can play games, can be used for a little bit of home productivity, and has some educational benefits that we can sell for more like $600. And we'll call that a home computer. Now that we've kind of laid the groundwork for what a microcomputer was and how microcomputer markets were defined in the late 1970s, and into 1980. In our second part, 
we will look at the actual birth of this home computer market and the ways that especially Commodore and Texas Instruments started to define this market and then just as quickly began to destroy this market. Now that we understand the setup of where the computers came from, how they started to get into the home, and they're not just necessarily for enthusiasts anymore, and then we have all these pressures from competition, manufacturing, and regulation to help drive the prices down, we're setting up a nice little box with nitroglycerin and kaboomies in order to start a war. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, definitely a way to put it because, you know, this new kind of paradigm really set the stage for what was going to be an incredibly intense competition. It's just like all the other consumer electronics. There was there were cycles at this period of time. You had calculators explode into relevance as a commercial product and as a consumer product and then crash and burn very quickly. Then you had digital watches do the same thing. You had dedicated video game consoles, the non-programmables, do the same thing. You almost had video game consoles do the same thing. They managed to avoid it. Spoiler alert, they only put it off for a few years, but they managed to avoid it in the late 1970s because space invaders came along and rescued them, basically. But you had the same thing that was starting to happen in video games and computers in the home. Personal computers were kind of above it all because they weren't that kind of consumer product yet. But as soon as these factors in computing that we just discussed manifested at the end of the 1970s, now the computer was set up to be a true consumer product as well. And just like all of the consumer electronics products that came before it, it was about to be subject to the same explosive market conditions. So absolutely, it was basically setting a ticking time bomb. And in our second and third episodes, we are going to watch as it explodes in slow motion. Well, some of you get to hear the whole story very shortly. The rest of you have to wait a few weeks. But we will see you next time on They Create Worlds, The Computer Price Wars, Part 2. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 